questions, I really would invite you to come up and we can talk about them as far as is possible in the context tonight. So please be welcome to do that. All right, so let's start now with um, the context. So I just want you to see the connection between these verses that Carly read for us a few moments ago and the rest of the letter to the Colossians. So open up your Bibles, which you no doubt have with you, to the book of Colossians, coming as it does after the book of, to the Philippians. And uh, we'll look, and, and you can open up actually to um, chapter 2 of Colossians, the verses 6 and 7. Now, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 is the hinge, or really the heart of the letter to the Colossians in one sense. The hinge, the, 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 the turning point in this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. Now, just before I read these verses, Brandon has mentioned this uh, many times. Brandon, the service pastor here at Church at Five, you guys can cut this out, right? Currently on uh, parental leave, we'll be back hopefully, as I said, in three weeks' time. That's Brandon for you. Now, Brandon's mentioned this many times, but one of the markers of Paul's letters is that they often begin after greetings and prayers with a strong focus on theological, theological realities. And here, if you've been with us since we began Colossians last November, you will know that the big theological reality that Paul unfolded for us in the second half of chapter one is the supremacy of Christ, that he is the firstborn of all creation, he is the image of the eternal God, and in him and for him and through him, all things have been created, and in him they find their purpose and their goal. So that's the theological reality, the supremacy, as it says in English, and I love that word, the supremacy of Christ. He's the focus, goal, and purpose of the whole universe, and this universe has been reconciled to Christ through his blood shed on the cross. And so after laying out a big theological reality, Paul will then often switch to a focus on how do we live in light of this reality, in light of this truth. And chapter 2 of Colossians, verses 6 and 7, is that switch. So let me read them with you now. We read there. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus, this supreme Lord, this supreme Jesus as Lord, now what? Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So that's Paul's apostolic, as an apostle, his goal and his vision for the church back in the first century at Colossae, and also for us here at this church in the 21st century. We've received Christ Jesus as Lord because he is now the Lord of the universe through his death and resurrection, through his reconciling all things to himself. He is the supreme one. He is the Lord. And having, um, having now received him as Lord, Paul is saying, I want you to continue to live your lives in him. Uh, what does that mean, in him? Namely, in his sphere of lordship, under his rulership and under his dominion, in harmony with his word, with his message. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So then, um, and again we're going back a little bit now in our series, but if you've been here you'll recall as I say this, uh, Paul first then turns to warning against false teachers who would bring us away from this life rooted in Christ. That's kind of the remainder of chapter 2 before turning in the beginning of chapter 3 to show us how to live a life, and this is important, how to live a life centered in and rooted in Christ. So first he says, 
this is what I want you to do. You've received Christ as Lord now. Live in him, be rooted in him. And I'm going to warn you, watch out for people who will take you away from that, rooting, from that being rooted in Christ. And now he comes to say the positive side of the coin. Well, what does it actually look like? What does it mean to live the Christ-centered life? And he begins that in chapter 3, verse 1. And you can flick there now in your Bible and just skim over these verses in chapter 3. He firstly says, the first thing is to set our minds on things above, namely where Christ is, at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Then he says, now you need to put off those things which have marked out your old life, not in Christ. And the classical Christian word for that is sin. Put these old things away. Put them to death, in fact, he says. And instead, put on what marks us now, put on the clothing or if you want the uniform that marks us as having new life in Christ. Recognizing, therefore, that Christ is now the defining distinction we have as members of this new humanity. And as, we, as we've seen the last three weeks, we've been learning now that we are to live together in Christ. That's what it re really is to be the church. Life together in Christ, namely the church, as we looked at these last two weeks, where Christ is all and is in all. So I, hope, I want you to see the progression here. He now, having looked at us individually, that is that we all need to put off the marks of the old life, put on the new life. Then he turns his attention to look at us corporately, together, in the church. Now Paul t turns to life in the family, life in the household. And he's going to look at what it means to live in family relationships under the lordship of Christ. And this is important, uh, I see, I think, to the argument that I'll make in just a few moments' time or a bit later tonight, namely why I see these verses that we read about uh, husbands and wives as being of permanent relevance and authority for us and our lives. The, the verses we've read tonight on husbands and wives, Paul anchors, he connects these verses, this text, in his thoughts on living a Christ-centered life living under the Lordship of Christ. They're part of what it means for Paul to live under the Lordship of Christ, to live a Christ-centered life. That is to say, we, we have to be, be uh, cautious about having a truncated, that is a shortened, um, limited view of what the Lordship of Christ means. As if the Lordship of Christ, yes, it will affect the church, and it's primarily about the kingdom, and it's primarily about getting the message about Jesus out there, but it really doesn't have much to actually say about how we live our lives right down into our daily lives at home in our relationships. That's a truncated view. You're missing the implications of the gospel, the implications of the Lordship of Christ for other areas of your life. Paul says, no, the Lordship of Christ, it, it applies to all areas, to the individual, uh, to the church, and to the household. And we know from other letters that it also applies to that other sphere, namely to the civic government. So that's the first thing. And secondly, Paul is arguing, and I want you to see this, and we'll look at this, this in more depth next week, but Paul is arguing that we should live this way as wives and as husbands and, of ch and as children, not for cultural reasons or for ancient reasons that have long since passed into history and into oblivion. But we should live this way because it honors the Lord Jesus and it fits, it, it, it fits together with his lordship 
over all of our lives. As he says here to the wives, they should submit themselves to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And within these verses, he mentions the Lord Jesus seven times. So the reasoning Paul gives is he's constantly bringing it back to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not to any cultural uh, reasoning or, or, or other ancient reasoning. And that's why I've been careful to say these last two weeks, if you've been here, when talking about the uh, Colossians, verse, uh, Colossians 3 verse 11. Let me read that with you now. There, we are, there Paul writes, Here there is now, or here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And I've been careful to say that this doesn't mean that these distinctions have been erased or destroyed, taken away. Rather, they still exist, but they now find their fulfillment or their purpose in glorifying the Lord Jesus. So as one commentator writes here, the new family of God gives believers their fundamental identity. That's who we are. The defining factor of who we are is that we are in Christ. But, continuing the quote here, the spiritual family does not eliminate the continuing significance of the physical family, that is, you know, our marriages and households, and the relations appropriate to its smooth functioning. Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1 can be seen as giving guidance for the way Christians are to bring all of life under the Lordship of Christ. So that's my first point this evening. I just wanted to give you guys the context of these verses. I want you to see that they fit in with Paul's general argument that he's showing the, com the community at Colossae how to bring all of their lives, including their marriages, including their raising their kids, under the Lordship of Christ. That's the first point tonight. Now, of course, um, the fact that these verses are contentious, that is, or sensitive, uh, is due to the fact that, obviously, there are many Christians who disagree with what we read here. If there were no disagreement, there would be no contention. Very simple. So that is to say, they, many Christians disagree with what we read here in the, Colossian, in, in, the book, in the letter to the Colossians. That is to say, they say, and I'm generalizing here, of course, and I want to be fair, but um, for the sake of brevity, let me generalize here and say, they say, no, wives should not submit to their husbands, and no, the husband is not the head of his wife. Or, that's one way of doing it, or they'll so, they will so reinterpret headship and submission, or leadership and submission, as to render these terms basically meaningless. If we, if we end up saying we should all submit to each other, it really means that there's no functional difference between the submission of a wife to her husband or the husband to his wife, vice versa. Now read with me in Ephesians chapter 5. This is the sister letter to the Colossian, to the letter to the Colossians. Sister letter, I say, in that it was probably written at the same time by the Apostle Paul and sent with the same messenger to Kikos. Um, and uh, Colossae lies 100 miles, what's that, 150 kilometers, inland from Ephesus on the coast. So both these letters were sent at the same time, and if you are a careful reader and you would have read Colossians and, the, and Ephesians at the same time, you'll realize that we hit the same points at basically the same po at, at the same time in each letter. 
So here we we have in Colossian uh, in Ephesians five twenty one. Let me uh, twenty two. Let me read these famous verses or well known verses. There we read: Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So I want to say, um, again, I want to be, be fair, but I want to say that this is, the, um, this is the way the Bible, this is the biblical understanding of Christian marriage. These terms, wife submitting to the husbands, husband being the head of the wife, they have to mean something. They have to be distinct from each other. But those who contend with this understanding and will advocate uh, they will advocate for a, a, an understanding of marriage where there is no functional difference between husband and wife. So they may say, on the one hand, yes, we see a difference between husband and wife, but basically, because they're arguing for a complete equality between the husband and wife, there's no functional difference in the way that the Bible makes a functional difference. The Bible calls the husband the head, and he, or, or the Bible relates the position of the husband to that of Christ and that of the wife to the church. And Christ loves the church in a different way than the church loves Christ. Now, of course, this, this understanding of complete equality, um, we could call that egalitarianism, and it's very alluring today in our culture and time. We live in a, in a culture which is, rap, is, is, is very keen on pursuing absolute equality. Not only um, equality of opportunity, but also equality of, of outcome. And so this, of course, concerns the way in which we read and we understand and view the Bible that is the Holy Scripture. And that's what I want to look at with you now. Our understanding here of the Bible at Calvary Chapel in Freiburg. Now, of course, um, again, I, I want to be fair here. I'm not talking about uh, liberal Christians or liberal Christianity. Um, of course, liberal Christians and liberal Christianity denies the authority of the Bible. Let me give you the definition of liberal Christianity um, from Wikipedia. Um, but I found it such a good definition, but it's also quoted from a book. So here it goes. This is the definition of liberal Christianity. Liberal Christianity is a movement that seeks to reinterpret and reform Christian teaching by taking into consideration modern knowledge, science, and ethics. It emphasizes the authority of individual reason and experience. Liberal Christians view their theology as an alternative to both atheistic rationalism and to traditional theologies based on external authority, such as the Bible or the sacred tradition of the church. So I'm not particularly meaning liberal Christianity tonight because liberal Christianity, as we saw from that definition, they deny the authority of the Bible. The highest authority for, the, for liberal Christianity is their own reason and experience. And you'll find this liberal theology 
all through the Protestant state churches here in Europe and in the mainline denominations in such places as the United States, Canada, and Australia, where I'm from. So what concerns me is not particularly liberal Christianity. I know liberal Christianity simply denies uh, the, the authority of the scripture at many points. But what concerns me here is that evangelical Christians, who have traditionally, that means in the past, had a high view of scripture, are involved in denying the authority of the Bible's teaching at points like this here in Colossians 3 in order to argue for the egalitarian position. And let me give you some examples. There are many, but let me limit it here to three. And these often go together. It's not that you hold one of these. Usually you'll hold all three. So firstly, is the egalitarian argument, that is the argument towards there being no functional difference between men and women here in the household or in marriage. They're, they're equivalent, equal in every single sense and in every single facet. Firstly, the egalitarian argument that verses like Colossians 3.18 and 19 are culturally limited. So the argument of cultural limitation. They're only relevant to the Greco-Roman culture of the New Testament. That is, the New Testament, because it was written in the time it was, that is, in the first century or first and second centuries after Christ, when at the, the height of the Greco-Roman world, Roman power, Greek uh, culture, it was, it was, of course, written with that culture's understanding of marriage and the family. And the New Testament simply reflects that culture. But, the argument would then go, we live in a completely different culture, one in which men and women are absolutely equal, and therefore this text is no longer authoritative for us. That would be that argument in brief. Secondly, the argument is made that these differing roles of the husband and the wife are a result of the fall of mankind into sin, and that before the fall there was no such order in marriage, and therefore when Jesus Christ comes and Jesus Christ defeats sin, the de death and the devil, and therefore overcomes the fall, there should now no longer be an, such an order in marriage today. And again, therefore, this text, when we, when we think about the full implications of Christ's victory and Christ's restoration, is no longer authoritative for us today. And I want to come back to that one right at the end. And finally, again, these statements often related, often held together, is the idea that Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, like Paul, they were on a trajectory, they were on a, like a, they were on a path towards full equality between men and women in the church and in the family, but they couldn't quite reach that goal due to the culture they were in. So we see from the way that Jesus related to women that he really had a completely different understanding of women but he, just, he was just inhibited by the culture he was in. He couldn't quite get to that point. And neither could his apostles. By the time the New Testament was completed, they still hadn't managed to kind of break out of that. But today, we can see where they were heading and we can affirm the egalitarian conclusions, endpoints that they were moving towards. And oftentimes, we'll hear a, a verse like Colossians 3.11 that I read a few moments ago. Or, particularly, Galatians 3, 28, 
And let me read that to you now. Galatians 3, verse 28. There we read. Sorry, I'm in chapter 4. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this kind of verse, or Colossians 3.11, will be evidenced as what, what, what is sometimes referred to as a, a seed idea. This is a seed that was planted at the time the New Testament was written and is supposed to grow to maturity through the ages as, as the church fully understands through time what the implications of this really mean, namely an egalitarian position. And so again, based on this understanding, our text that we read tonight in Colossians is no longer authoritative for us. That means it no longer has any uh, authority or anything to tell us about how we should be living lives in our marriages today. Now, the problem that I believe common to all of these arguments is that they are functionally, that is in what, they may not, they may not say this. When I say functionally, I mean they may not say this, but this is, this is the result. The end result is that they deny the authority of the scripture of the Bible. Now, I, I believe they're also shaky on their historical support and faulty in their interpretation, but I'm obviously willing to talk about that. But I believe that you can't get around the fact that they functionally deny the authority of the scripture. That is, they literally have, the, these texts that we read in the Bible at different points, they have no authority over us. They have nothing more to tell us. So let me at this point bring in our um, Calvary Chapel, Freiburg, understanding of the scripture. And, and uh, do let me say as I do this, it's not like ooh, we're, we're the only people who ever came up with this and we've got it right. No, no. This is an understanding that we share historically with those churches coming out of the Reformation uh, at the time of the Reformation and indeed with the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church and Orthodox Church in the sense that we believe the Bible is inspired, is the inspired word of God and is infallible. Of course, when it comes to authority, the Orthodox and the Catholic churches have a different understanding. So, quoting from our uh, statement of faith, which you can pick up there in print copy in English and German at the back or download from the website, it says there, we believe that the Holy Scriptures, that is, the word of God, the Bible, are inspired and infallible. The Bible is true, it is sufficient, and it is the highest authority. So there the Catholic and Orthodox churches would disagree. It is one of the two authorities, or it is part of the one authority. In all questions of Christian faith and practice, let me repeat that, it is the highest authority in all questions of Christian faith and practice, both for the individual Christian and also for the whole church. Therefore, the result of this is, the Bible is to be believed in all that it teaches. It is to be obeyed in all that it requires. It is to be trusted in all that it promises. Now, this is what we call in, in theology a high view of Scripture. That is, we, we look at the Scripture as a, as a high, as, or as the highest authority in, in our lives, both individually and for us together as a church. 
We affirm the authority of the Bible. We don't deny it. And I can speak for all of us here, all of the pastors here at Calvary Chapel. We all subscribe to this understanding of the scriptures. And again, here at this point, I'm willing to talk to you, any of you, about questions on the infallibility or the authority of the Bible. I'm not trying to paper over. I know some of you study theology here uh, in Freiburg at some of the Hochschulen here, and you will obviously come into contact with um, arguments against the infallibility of the Scripture. Happy to talk to you about that. I'm not pretending, uh, I'm not running away from university theology or pretending that these difficulties don't exist. I'm happy to talk to you about them. But that's not my focus for tonight. I'm just explaining what where we stand as a church. Now let me also add to that, and again, not in an alarmist manner, I'm not freaking out here, I'm not like fortress mentality here. This understanding of the Bible that I just read to you a moment ago is shared by fewer and fewer churches and Christian institutions, including seminaries and Bible schools here in Germany at the moment. My take on it at the moment is that this view of Scripture is on the retreat in Germany. It's different in other parts of the world, but certainly that's the case, I believe, here in Germany. I don't mean, I also don't mean that those people who don't share this understanding of the Scripture are somehow therefore not Christians. That's not what I'm saying. I do believe that they're wrong, uh, and that's okay. Christians, we should be able to engage in robust theological debate. We shouldn't get all scared and cry and go home. So I do believe they're wrong. I'm quite happy to say that, but um, I don't deny that they are Christians. But I do think it's a dangerous path away from the truth and towards unbelief to, to have doubt in the authority and reliability of God's word. So what does this mean for the way we teach and understand the Bible here at Calvary Freiburg, what we, call, what we might call our hermeneutic? So firstly, we recognize the Bible as having authority over our lives. That would, that's, what it, that, what, that's what it means that this is the canon, canon being the Greek word for a measuring rod. That is the canon is what we measure things against to see if they are in order or okay. And the Bible is the canon, that is, it is that authority against which we measure all other things. Our lives, our relationships, our church, our experiences, prophecies, revelation, we measure these things by the Bible. It's the authority, not the other way around. So it's not our culture or our ideas or our philosophies or the zeitgeist that defines truth and how we live as Christians. It's God's unchanging word. Now, having said that, we're all children of our time, and so we're all subject, even if we say we don't want to do this, we're all subject to read the Bible in the light of our culture, which is why we need to hear from other Christians of other ages. C.S. Lewis had a great rule. For every three books he would read, he'd read one book from a different age, an old book, because that would often in reading those old books that he would see his own blind spots where he was just thinking the way he was thinking because he's a, a child of his own age. And I can commend that to you now. In fact, you can get a good English translation called, uh, what is it called? On Marriage and Family by St. John Chrysostomos, the 4th century Greek preacher from Antioch in a, a lovely modern English translation. Um, I can give you the ISBN at the end of the service. And there's a great sermon in there called uh, On the Choice of a Wife. So have fun reading that one. I certainly did. No, it's good. 
Secondly, we read, this is important for you to hear, we read the Bible here as always valid for us. I think that's an important argument to make. The well-known verse here, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's all of us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture. The, the arguments from an egalitarian position that I um, went over with you before briefly, basically render passages. They make passages like the ones we read tonight together as superfluous, extra, not needed anymore because they don't apply to us. They only applied maybe back in that culture or time. And certainly they may be of interest to scholars and researchers at the university who are studying early Christianity, sure, but they have no current authority, according to the egalitarian understanding, or meaning for Christians today. And in some sense, we could cut them out of the Bible and we wouldn't miss anything. That's, that's where I have to say, no. We confess that all scripture, and here we have in view these texts in Colossians, but I also include the Old Testament, all scripture remains authoritative and valid for all of us as Christians. And it will do so forever. Heaven and earth may pass away, says Jesus, but my words shall never pass away. Now, obviously, we are then, we are then once we recognize the validity of Scripture, we are then, of course, in a position to look at the text and interpret the text. So don't confuse validity with interpretation. Interpretation is a task that we also have to apply to the Scripture. So let me give you uh, an example so you understand what I mean. Let's take the issue of head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. I can see one person wearing a head covering here tonight. A 1 Corinthians 11 purist, no doubt. So the question then becomes, well, what do we do with Paul's instruction to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11 that the women should be wearing head coverings in worship? Now, if we simply say that this is merely cultural and therefore it doesn't apply to us tonight, we basically have a section of, of the Bible that we could cut out and we wouldn't be missing anything. We could just skip over it and go straight to communion in 1 Corinthians 11. But we don't want to do that. We want to say that this text is valid. is valid. And therefore, what could that mean? Well, we would then have to look at the text and we'd either have to come down on the side that says, indeed, this text means that we should all, or, or, or all of the, certainly all of the women in a church, should be actually wearing a head covering today. Or, and this is what I would advocate for here, Paul is arguing for a biblical principle that is, being, that is being made visible through the wearing of head coverings. There's a certain principle at stake, the principle of orderly worship. And therefore, we have to look at what is the cultural meaning of a head covering in that culture, and how does that head covering give expression to this biblical principle, and therefore, looking today for that same biblical principle, what is a way that we can give that principle today an expression in our church. And so I, see, I hope you see the difference. We're not simply getting rid of this verse and saying, it has nothing to say to me. Nor are we blindly saying, okay, well, therefore I'll put on a head covering. But we're saying, what's the principle? We're recognizing this text is of continuing validity and authority in our lives and in the life of the church. All right, that's, again, 
I think I'm saying this for every point. If you want to come up and talk about head coverings after, <laughs> please do. So, <clears throat> and as one commentator says, and I do this, this does I do speak here from the heart. Um, as if we as evangelicals accept these arguments, um, denying the authority of the scripture, then quote, we are quietly and unsuspectingly being trained to reject this verse of scripture and that command of scripture, this passage and that teaching here and there throughout the Bible. And as this procedure goes on, we'll begin to have whole churches who no longer, Isaiah 66 verse 2, tremble at the word of God and who no longer live by, Matthew 4, 4, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, but who pick and choose the things they like and the things they don't like in the Bible. And in this way, he continues, the authority of God's word, the ultimate authority of God himself over our lives will be diminished and in principle rejected. I can say, well, I don't like that, so I'm not going to accept that. Thirdly, our understanding of the Bible here at Calvary Chapel, and this is really important. I want you to hear this and I want you to remember it before next Sunday's message. We recognize that the Bible is our authority, yes, but we also recognize it is written for our flourishing and our joy. This is so important. The Bible is powerful. It's the word of God. It's living and active in Hebrews, able to change us through faith in Jesus Christ that comes by hearing the word, Romans 10. And God is good. God is good. The author of this book, the ultimate author of this book, is good. His word is there so that we should have life and not death. That's what God says to Joshua as he gives the people of Israel the choice whether they will accept God's law. I say to you, choose life this day and not death. This is the word of life. The word of Jesus is that we should have life to the full. The Bible is written for our flourishing and our joy. So how does this come to bear on our text in Colossians tonight, this shouldn't be a text that we should need to be ashamed of or explain away or apologize for or try to completely empty of all power or an authority. I want you to hear this, wives, potential wives, husbands, potential husbands. Um, God's desire in giving us this text is that you, is that we flourish. It's designed for our joy, our contentment and our satisfaction. So I'll say, I'll say that again. This text is designed, if you live by it, to bring you true joy, true contentment, and true satisfaction into your marriage and into your family. Could it be any other way with our God who is so good? You, you need to hear that. This is not simply a neutral, dry argument about the authority of Scripture. This has everything to do with your heart, with your emotion, with worshipping God. This text has been written that you might have true joy, true contentment, true satisfaction in your marriage and in your family and that your marriage and your family fulfill the goal that God created it for, namely to glorify God and bring honor to him, which is what we ultimately were created to do, Colossians chapter 1. Could it be any other way with our God? So, so don't look at this verse as... But look at it as this was written, if you will, for my joy. Now, our time is almost up, but let me now come to my third argument uh, tonight. I want to show you very briefly now why I see these verses, Colossians 3, 18 and 19 particularly at the moment, as being of permanent relevance and authority for us and our lives. 
which would mean, if that's true, we need to study them and see what they have to say to us, which is what we'll do, God willing, next Sunday. Now, of course, I've said this is where we stand confessionally as a church. We believe this about the Bible, that it is the authoritative word of God, and therefore it is valid for us. That's a confession that I'm making. But I want to show you this. I want to show you, I want to give you this argument another way from the scripture itself. So pay attention now. Um, I think 10 more minutes should do it. So firstly, I've argued that all of Scripture tonight is valid for all time, and that is the only understanding, I believe, that does justice to the Bible and Jesus' own claims. Jesus himself says, again, heaven and earth will pass away, my word will never pass away. I tell you, he says, not even one jot or tittle. That is the tittle, yeah? That's right, in English. The, the tiny dot on top of the I, the tiny cross on the T, not one of those things will be taken out of God's word until heaven and earth pass away, he says. So I think that's the only understanding that does justice to Jesus' own claim. Secondly, at the beginning, I showed you, I hope, how this text fits into Paul's argument right here in Colossians of placing all of our lives under the lordship of Christ. That it's not some thing that was just added in from the culture. It's part of Paul's understanding. Let's bring all of life individually, as a church, as families, as households, under the lordship of Christ. This is how Jesus wants us to live now. And now, thirdly, let me fit this text into the, into the story or, of Scripture. I want to show you, if I, if I may, uh, the link between Colossians and Genesis. Back to the beginning. And just for those of you who may, who may be interested, this is not my original thinking. There's a theologian by the name of Christopher R. His uh, initial, Seitz, S-E-I-T-Z, uh, upon whom I'm relying here. So open up, if you will, to Genesis. That's the first book of the Bible. Who knew? And we read there in Genesis 1.27. I'll just go through fairly briefly, so that's why I tell you, have your Bibles open and follow through as I give you this argument. So, Genesis 1.27, the creation. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, men and women, he created them. This is an important point to make. At the beginning of the Bible, we read that both men and women are created in the image of God. This is a privilege given only to men and women, not the animals. And this means that before God, men and women are equal in value and dignity. That's not what I've been arguing against tonight, that there's somehow more value or dignity in being male because the man is the head in the, the, the marriage. That's not my argument. Rather... Men and women from the creation are equal in value and dignity. Both have been created by God as human beings. Both have been created in the image of God to be like God and to represent him. Indeed, there's an argument that only together as male and female can we appropriately represent God who himself is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, not just God. And therefore, when it comes to the value and dignity of all human life, there is no difference. Men and women are equally precious equally valuable. That's the first point from Genesis 1.27. But secondly, moving on, men and women have different roles in marriage as part of the created order. That is, before the fall into sin, there was already a difference in role, not in value, in marriage between Adam and his wife Eve. That is to say, Adam's headship in marriage, or I'm going to summarize that by saying leadership, was established by God before the fall. It's not a result of sin. 
Let me give you a couple of reasons why. Firstly, the order. Adam was created first, not Eve. And you might be thinking, what is that? Um, this is obviously important to the original readers. It's hard for us to understand this in our culture today, but that doesn't mean that that meaning isn't in the original text. It just means we have to understand that to understand the original meaning. Adam was created first, not Eve. Look at Genesis 2, verse 7. We see there, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Later, verse 18 in chapter 2 of Genesis the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And we see the story goes on. Luke, uh, chapter um, 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. So the man was created first. And indeed, in 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, Paul argues from the order of creation and says that this has implications for relationships between men and women. Adam was created first, not Eve. Now, secondly, and I find this important, representation. Representation. It was Adam, not Eve, who had the function of representing the human race, that is, mankind. Now, it was, in fact, Eve, if you will, who sinned first. And we might expect the Bible or the New Testament to say, you know, because of Eve's sin. But that's never the case. We read here as an example, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 23. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, the Christ the first fruits then when he comes those who belong to him. So it's Adam who is the representative head of mankind. He represents humanity and not Eve. Finally, let me give you one more. There are others I could mention, but just one more will suffice for this evening. Um, Adam has the primary responsibility and accountability in this marriage, even before the curse. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, you remember, they hid. And then what do we read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9? Oh, we'll, we'll take it from verse 8. The, the man and his wife, so Adam in Hebrew, and his wife, heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you not eaten, oh, sorry, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat of? Even though Eve was the one who took the fruit, if you will, and in that sense sinned first, God summoned Adam to give an account of what had happened in his family. Adam was responsible and accountable for what went on in his family. And you can even see that again in chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. That it's the Lord God gives the man, Adam, first the responsibility and the instructions for what he later with his wife are together to accomplish in the garden. Namely to tend the garden and look after it. 
So th those are the three reasons why I think this, this order, the order of creation already included the fact that Adam and Eve had different roles in marriage. Namely, Adam was the head, and we'll get into what that means next Sunday evening. And thirdly, now, this is important, because I want to link this up to Colossians and finish in a couple of moments. Thirdly, now comes the curse and the fall. God's curse brings a distortion of previous roles in marriage. It doesn't bring new roles. Let's hear the curse now, after having spoken to the serpent. This is important. The Lord God now turns to the woman first. In verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3, he says to the woman first, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing, childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is the distortion of the existing role, not the creation of new roles. Verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. That is to say, you listened to your wife, you abdicated the responsibility and the accountability you had when I gave you the instructions. It's not in general about listening to women. You must not eat from it. Therefore, the Lord says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So note the order here. God speaks first to the woman, then to the man. But God gives hope that this curse will one day be overcome through Jesus. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion. I will put enmity, God says to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, that's Jesus, and you will strike his heel. That's the crucifixion. So fourthly and finally tonight, when we now come to the New Testament, to books like Colossians, and the New Testament is about the unfolding of the redemption and restoration in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who overcomes the devil and begins to overcome, overturn the, the curse, although it will only fully be overturned when Jesus returns to inaugurate his kingdom. We would expect, if Jesus is overturning the curse, to, refine, to find a reversal of what we read in the curse in Genesis 3.16. And that's exactly what we do find right here in Colossians 3.18 and 19, which are a command to undo... Let's open it up again in Colossians 3. To undo the impulse based on the curse, um, for the woman to oppose. And it is against the impulse of the husband, based on the curse, to rule harshly over his wife. So I, I know I've been through that very briefly, left a couple of things out here, but I want you to see that Colossians fits as a restoration of the relationship between Adam and Eve that they had in the garden before the fall. And it's interesting, and that's what Christopher Seitz points out. He says that Paul here in Colossians 3, he does it exactly in the same order that we read in Genesis. Namely, as the Lord God first turned to curse the woman, so it is that, that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, first turns to the woman to reject the curse and get us back to the created order, the good created order, 
And as the Lord God then speaks to Adam, the man, so Paul then addresses husbands, telling them, again, exactly the opposite of the curse. The curse would mean that husbands would tend towards harsh rule over their wives. Now, Paul says, and this is unique in ancient literature concerning households, he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So let me leave you with the thought tonight. I'll invite the two worshippers, worship leaders. There's many more worshippers here. I'll invite the two worship leaders back up. Colossians is about, and let me leave you with this thought and invite you, let's hear the rest of it uh, next Sunday evening, is about restoring and reestablishing the beauty of the relationship between Adam and Eve that existed at the creation. That's what the goal of Colossians is, to reestablish the beauty and the harmony of the relationship between Adam and Eve that existed at the creation. That is what Paul is arguing for. That's what the New Testament is intending as Jesus overcomes the curse through his Holy Spirit. I'll leave you with that thought now. Um, I'll invite you now to maybe ponder, maybe stand uh, to worship God. And again, a warm invitation. If you've got questions now, please do come up um, after and I'll be right here and you can speak to me. And right now, I believe uh, Silvana will be praying along with Philip. If you would like prayer for anything, give thanks to the Lord. You've got a concern, you've got a worry, then um, Silvana and Philip will be up here. You will be up here? Yep, to pray for you guys. So let me say there, amen. And uh, see you after the service or see you next Sunday.